Hey, if you have not been at Vintage, we are in kind of we are in week eight, uh, going through the book or the letter of James. And I encourage you, if you have not, you're like, oh my God, I love the book of James. I'd love to hear what's going on. You can go back to the podcast at Vintage. You can find it on on the, on the Vintage app. We have a Vintage app that has all the all the information of Vintage on there. Just go to your app store on your phone, find Vintage 242 Church, and you can download it. Or you can just go to our website under Resources. We have sermons and messages there. You can listen to it. I hope you've been enjoying uh, your small groups, those of you who are in them in this season. Uh, so I want to just kind of catch you up, just real, real simple, kind of the heartbeat of what's going on in the book of James, the letter of James. It's not really a book, it's more of a letter. James is writing a letter to all these surrounding churches who've been a part of the great dispersion. Persecution, right, happened in Jerusalem, and everybody goes, pew, and kind of spreads out, right, because of fear of death, fear of persecution. So the church is no longer just centered in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions all around. So he's writing one letter to all of them. And if you've read the letter of James, you know that James isn't really all about touchy-feely, heartfelt language. He's super direct. He is super to the point, And he makes his thoughts known very clearly and emphatically. And the heartbeat behind it is James is not mincing words. He's like, listen, you are no longer here. You are out here. In being out here, you cannot live in hypocrisy. It's really a letter written saying, if you're going to be the church and you're going to be followers of Jesus, then be the church, be followers of Jesus. Do not live as hypocrites. Make sure that what you say that you believe is actually what you are doing because everyone around you is aware And if you don't, it's going to impede your witness, but it's also going to produce disunity in the body of Christ. And friends, that's just not okay. And so James is coming and speaking a very direct word. And so this morning, just to be honest with you, like James is kind of hard to teach because it's so, so direct. And this morning, I just want you to know that I'm just going to kind of speak with the way that James is speaking. And if you don't mind, just be really, really direct this morning. And I'm going to begin with this phrase to kind of launch us off. And I just want you to know it's not going to feel good when I say it. And it's simply this. God is comfortable living opposed to every believer who is walking in pride. You have to get to this place. God is comfortable living opposed to every believer walking in pride. So again, this is this kind of, we don't like the way this sounds necessarily, right? But James is getting trying to get across to the believers that he's writing to. Listen, how you live your life is super important. The central verse for this morning is the very familiar words of James 4, 6, where I quoted this from, where he says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Like when you preach, when you read that, most people like to go focus on God gives grace to the humble. So let's just choose humility. We don't talk much about the opposition piece, but what it's saying is God literally, in the moment, he opposes the proud. And here's the hard thing about it to remember. James is not talking to unbelievers. James is writing this to the redeemed, to the saved, 
to the Christ follower, those who have had these incredible experiences of demons being cast out, legs growing, people being miraculously saved in the early church, experienced all of this, and he's speaking to them saying, God will oppose you if you're living in pride. But he can't wait to pour out grace to the humble. So in this verse, we find these two opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum and the context of our spiritual life. And this morning, we want to look at both ends of the story. And let's begin by reading from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can read from there and follow along. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Like, I just want to press pause as you read through here, recognize the language that James uses. He just called the believers adulterers, right? So I think it's really important that we find these dramatic terms. Don't gloss over them because they don't feel good and recognize we dive into them so we understand what James is trying to say. Verse 4, I'll say it again, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or separation or this tension with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him or herself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. Here it is again, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or sister judges his or a brother or sister, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and only one judge. And he is he who is able to save and who is able to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we're going to begin by looking at the life of the proud and then end by looking at the life of the humble. So we look at the life of the proud by combining verses 1 through 5, 11 through 12. We say this morning, I'm not going to be diving into all of this this morning in the context of doing it justice. It's like six messages in one. So, hey, I encourage you to take some time this week. Guess who loves to lead and teach people through his word? Jesus. So sit down with him this week. Spend some time with him and allow him to lead you through the words he's speaking this morning. So when speaking of the proud, again, it's important to note that James is talking to us. He's talking to believers, people who are in the church. And I think all of us know that pride, pride is at the heart of all sin. 
It represents those who believe they know more than God. It represents those who ultimately believe they don't need God to succeed in life. They can do it on their own. We see it as the primary reason Satan fell from heaven, the primary reason that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and it's at the root of every sin that we commit, ultimately in pride, we are saying that we know more than God. That we're fine just leading our own lives, right? That we will tell ourselves what we want to do and how we want to do it, right? That we will decide for ourselves where we go and who we are in relationship with. James tells us that God opposes those who live like this. People who live as if they are their own God. Here's the thing. You know what pride looks like. Like I just said a bunch of stuff, but when I said those who live lives proud, you know what those people look like. You know the the things that they do and the way they live for self and they think about self and they tear others down to build themselves. That's what James has been talking about for the last several weeks. Hey, don't live your life in such a way that you stand on your own personal belief and convictions and your own self-righteousness and literally break relationship with everybody else because you are so dead set on just being right and making life about you. Like, you see it in people. You get around someone, you're like, oh, my gosh. And you use words like, they're so arrogant. They're so full of themselves. They're so full of pride. You watch people make decisions that hurt other people. And you know it's about protecting self and about self-seeking and self-righteousness, right? Selfish ambition. James is just talking about those things. And it's easy to pick it on other people. But let's just press pause again. Like, there is nothing worse than reading scripture theoretically. There is nothing worse than just reading it to gain a level of knowledge, but never actually make it practical. It's nothing worse than reading it theoretical and never letting God actually speak into the message he's trying to speak into in the moment. That's what the proud do. They read to gain knowledge without actually engaging it and letting God convict them in the process. So I just invite you, you know what pride is. I want to invite you this morning, not with any condemnation, but just being honest. Will you just let God right now begin to say, yeah, there's some pride in this area. Right? There's some pride in this area that you're wrestling with. Like, I I get it. I I mean, like, I get it. I get it this morning. Like, oh, my gosh, it's so hard sometimes to point those areas out. But growth occurs as we actually recognize areas we need to repent from. And so to make this message much more helpful this morning, it's important to recognize that every sin and every trial and temptation like James named in chapter 1 that you will face in life where you may make a decision that turns in disobedience to God ultimately has its root in your pride of saying, God, I know you said, but I'm going to do this. And so we have to be honest this morning about the nature of where pride is in our life. And so it's there. We all kind of wrestle with this. We all have the propensity towards this in our flesh. So what does it mean then for God to oppose us? 
What does it mean for God to oppose us? Well, all of us in here have seen those war movies, right? Like the gladiators, your old little Spartacus movies, right? You have like the Lord of the Rings over here. And in all of these movies, what do you have? In one primary climactic scene, you have these two armies, like usually on, on one side of one another, on a field or in a valley, right? And in both of these armies, they are literally, what are they doing? They are arrayed in their battle fatigue for the battle that's about to occur. And so you look over at them and they have their helmets on, they got their shoes on, they got their breastplates on, you've got your archers over here, you got those carrying their shields, you have those that are carrying their swords, right? They all, you let them have their faces painted, right? And what are they doing? Are they sitting over there just like drinking coffee and like eating crumpets and like, and just like this talking poetry to one another? No. Like they're literally like, rah, they're trying to work themselves up because this may be the moment they die, right? They're trying to get themselves amped up and they're screaming and they're doing all sorts of stuff. And then you have the movie, the guy who runs by on his horse, just telling them, you're great, you're going to go conquer for the king, whatever it is, right? Trying to get them all worked up. People in battle array, ready to do battle. That's what God looks like in opposition. That is actually in the Greek how they picture opposition in this phrase. Is that God in full battle array with his spiritual army looks at those who are living in pride and is ready to attack and to do battle. I don't know about you, but that's hard sometimes for me. Like, touchy-feely Jesus. He gets, gives me the feels and the goosebumps when I worship, right? But God is just a good, good father, just loves me. To think of God in full battle array saying, I see your pride and I'm coming after you. But that's the language of James because pride is such a big deal. Yes, God is aggressively coming after those who have chosen pride. But we can't miss the reason. We already said it. He's coming after us because pride is at the heart of all sin. He's coming after us saying, you want to be the God of your own life? That is not, not okay. I will live. I will oppose you. If you want to get a good Old Testament picture of this, it's a real simple story we all grew up with. Remember when the angel wrestles Jacob? We know it was actually a pre-incarnate Jesus coming down to wrestle Jacob. Because Jacob, in his pride, is living over here in his life, doing his own thing. And Jesus is like, that's not okay. So he comes down and they wrestle. And they wrestle. Like it's not play fighting like you do with your kids. Like they're literally, Jake is wanting to take this guy down. They're literally in his pride saying, I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. And so Jesus says, we'll wrestle until I'm done and then I'm going to break your hip. So you will know that you have been with God because you don't oppose me. Like this is not touchy-feely, is it? This is like in your face, like that's a little scary. Exactly. The fear of the Lord must overtake us again. He opposes us, fighting the pride in them. Listen, listen. The reason God opposes us, it's honestly very simple. Because when anyone, listen, this is super important. It takes you all the way back to the Ten Commandments. When anyone other than God 
is God. They create a mess of the world. They create a mess of everyone in it. And they make a mess of their own lives. And God is never okay with anyone being God because they royally mess up his plans and he will oppose them to make sure his plans happen. Have you read the Ten Commandments? There shall be no other gods before me. When you live in opposition to God, choosing to do what you want to do and say, God, I want you to save me, but I'll be Lord of my own life. You're literally opposed to him. He is opposed to you and he's willing to fight to bring you back into proper order. God will wrestle all day. He will wrestle all day. Why? Because he knows if you try to be God of your own life, it will lead you to death. And he is not okay with that. He created you for life. That's the reason he opposes us. So that ultimately our sinful desire, our sinful will could be crushed inside of us and we could move towards life. So looking at the selfish ambition, selfish desires, the nature of this pride. Verse 1 is going to go through these pretty quickly. Verse 1, he says, all right, all of your fighting and all of your quarrels are birthed from your selfish desires, right? That part of you that wants to, to live for your own pleasures and your own passions. See, the idea is like you have these passions and these pleasures of the world that you're going after, and when you don't get them the way that you want them, it creates fights and quarrels among you. This word, this is really important, the word passion here is the same word as hedonism. It's hedon. It's where we get the word hedonism. He says philosophy of living for the pleasures of life with no understanding that there's something you were created for in eternity. And he's saying, for those of you, you're living in pride because you've found the passions and the, the pleasures of this world. You see these things. And you want them, and when you don't get them, when someone else has them and you want them, when you live, you literally live at odds and you fight in your quarrels. In fact, all of your fights with people, all of your quarrels with individuals, people in the church, is because you have these expectations of self instead of what you want, what you want to look like and how you want to feel. And when that doesn't happen, you get angry die to this, right? So verse 2, verse 2 says this, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. And he ends up saying you do not have because you do not ask. In verse 2, our pride again has desires, these things of this world, things that we don't have but we want. It's literally primarily best expressed in self-seeking. I'm seeking stuff for self. I want to pleasure self. I want self to be gratified in the context of my life. And when we don't get it, when we don't get what we want, James says, will you kill and you covet? Now, covet makes a lot of sense here. Someone has something that I want and I will do whatever I can to get it and I'm going to hate them until I get it, right? The word murder or kill here is a really, really big word, right? And James literally could be talking, you literally do, but you didn't really hear much about that in the body of Christ. So what's James getting at? Well, James is using hyperbole, an exaggerated term to make a point. What's the point, Steve? In Scripture, Matthew and 1 Corinthians tell us that the murder of our mind is actually hatred. 
We literally live in hatred. What he's saying here is this murder, this kill, is actually this hatred that you have towards someone, that you hate someone because their life is different or something is better or they have something that you want, and you're literally willing to live at odds with them and create disunity because of it. We see it in the body of Christ, and you know, someone who has, a, who has someone in life who maybe sees in the life for you, you're like, oh my gosh, this person's gift is so much stronger than mine. I just wish I had that gift. And you're like, man, God, is this not fair? And you start to come, I just wish God you would give me something, whatever. Or in the context of a job, a person gets a, a, a raise ahead of you or they get a promotion ahead of you. You're like, oh, God, that belonged to me. And you get this, like, this animosity towards this person because you didn't get what you wanted. You can play that on every scenario of life, the self Seeking this point where I get angry, I literally allow division to come between me and somebody else because they have something that I want. I look down on them because of what they have. And you can just play it out on so many levels. I mean, those who are living like a middle class look at those who are living wealthy going, well, if I just had that vacation, if I just had that car, if I just had that house, life is so much easier. Asaph in the psalm says, he says, I looked at all this, how come they get all of this great stuff and I get nothing? He goes, all of this was oppressive to me. This is so overwhelming. I'm not getting what I want. Pride, self-seeking in the moment, right? They're pride causing disunity in the body. And James needs them to be self-aware of how their pride is destroying the body of Christ because of them. James, again, is wanting to be aware of the life they may be living that's against the law of God. What's the law of God? To love God and to love neighbor, right? How are we living with self-seeking in such a way that we're loving self before loving God, loving self before loving neighbor? And James is trying to kill this in the moment so the church can actually grow and we can actually thrive. So James is willing to wake up. They must fight against their own selfishness. Then in verse 2, is really fascinating. We read it a second ago. James reminds them, hey, God is for you, Right? James tells that God is for you. If, listen, if you, if you pray and you ask, God will bless you. He comes to them and says, listen, and this, listen, don't forget. I mean, you're like so angry, you're not getting, but God is a good God. He wants to bless his children. God wants to bless them, but we know this, but their hearts need to be pure. He says, you, what you ask, but you don't receive because you ask with selfish motives. He wants, listen, God simply stated he wants to bless them, but he needs their heart to be pure. God, he wants to be their greatest pleasure. He wants to be their greatest desire, not the things of the world. And so he says, I'm not going to say yes because I'm what you need, not these things. I'm saying no because these things produce death. I produce life. I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not a blessing for me to give you those things. But we keep on asking for them. And the sickening part is this, because what James is trying to say is, listen, guys, I want you all in the church to understand pleasures and desires are to be focused on Jesus. He's the only one who can satisfy. He's the only one who can gratify. He's the only one in those moments of feeling like tension and dissatisfied and kind of Ugh, in life. He's the only one who can meet those needs and actually make you feel fulfilled. And he looks and says, but it's sickening. While you are in relationship with Jesus, 
you're telling him, hey, you're not enough. Would you give me these things instead? Would you give me these pleasures? Would you give me these desires? You're not enough for me. I want this too. Like that's the language of the culture for James. They don't want God to be their greatest delight, but they want God to give them the things of the world to satisfy their pleasures. Here's the thing about it. You can go and pray for things like, God, I'm praying for a new car. God, I'm praying for an extra million dollars. And there is nothing wrong with those prayers, right? Like some of you need a new car. Something like vintage, we would love an extra million dollars to build on the property that God has given us, right? Praying those prayers is not wrong and it's not selfish. It's only when we pray those things, believing those are the things that will make me happy and satisfy me once I get them. That's the place. He's saying you have to be aware. There's nothing wrong with praying those things unless those are the things you feel like you need to be satisfied and fulfilled in life. For God, the whole time he is saying, and hear this, God is looking at you saying, can I be your greatest desire? Can I just be your greatest desire? And if so, I will satisfy all of your needs. If anything this morning, it's the heartbeat of Jesus. What James is ultimately trying to get at, listen guys, die to pride, die to self-seeking, die to this stuff, right? God doesn't love it because it's opposed to him. And it's because you're looking elsewhere, other lovers, really, to satisfy. But let God be your greatest desire because he can't wait to satisfy all of your needs. That's why you can't miss that word we stopped on earlier from verse 4. Remember that word, adulterers? I guarantee you no one ever in their quiet time just focuses on that word, right? Like, that's not great. God, let's go to the good part, right? But he comes in the moment and says, no, no, no. If you live like this where there's the desire that's available for you for Jesus only, but you're living over here, then you are adulterers. Like, it's really important language. It's not easy language. It's not touchy-feely language, right? But adultery speaks to a first true love, and then it speaks to a false love. And adultery always speaks to betrayal. And we all know you can't have two loves. You can't invite someone else into your covenant relationship with God. Let's make it more uncomfortable so you can't invite somebody else into your marriage bed with Jesus. That's what James is saying. I mean, there's so many ways I could say it's inappropriate, but I'm not going to, but it's like, there's just so many ways I want you to see this is inappropriate to invite anyone in anything else into your covenant relationship with Jesus. And James is saying, that's what you're doing. You've got to stop. You're living in hypocrisy because of it. You can't have two loves. You can't, again, he's talking to believers who want Jesus And they want the stuff of the world. He says, a life lived this way causes them to be an enemy of God. And it's not what any of them wanted. Hear this. I know it's really hard. You're like, oh my gosh, it's so heavy. His words are a gift. They were a warning. They were a warning to run from the life none of them actually wanted. 
None of them wanted to be enemies to God. None of them wanted to live opposed to God. None of them wanted to invite another lover into the marriage. That's not what they wanted. There was a level of ignorance to the sins they were committing. They were just unaware, and James is trying to wake them up in the moment, saying, wake up. Have you ever done that for somebody? They're about to do something really stupid that's going to negatively impact their life, and you catch them right before they do it. And you warn them, if you go down this, this is going to happen. And they turn and they go back the way they're supposed to go. And what do they say? Thank you. That's what I want to say to James. Thank you for using honest and real language. None of us want this. None of us want, listen, none of us want our decisions or our desires or our passions to keep us from the relationship that we have with Jesus. We don't want anything to creep into our life and alter this holy living that I'm doing with God. Pride creeps in, takes over before we know it. We know it is, listen, we know it is present in our lives when we live dissatisfied, when we find ourselves living at odds with people in the body of Christ, when our desires for things of the world outweigh our passion for Jesus, whenever we think, if I just had this, then my life would be content, right? Something other than Jesus. We have to be aware. James is trying to wake us up. Each of us today are being tempted by some expression of pride in our lives today. And James is saying, will you just be diligent to stay awake? Will you be diligent? This is my gift to you. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to be direct and honest because that's actually what friends do. That's what fathers do. He is their spiritual father. So, in fact, in James 5, then he comes to us, let me tell you why this is happening. It's because God is a jealous God. Let's read back up here in verse uh, 5. Um, or do you suppose there is no purpose? The scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. One of the things that struck me, some of the spirit he's given, put in us, God yearns jealously. What does that even mean? Well, it's simple. When I married Randall, I gave her the best of myself. In our marriage relationship, I invested all of my hope. You know, I'm getting in a holy way. Like I'm invited, I just invested all of myself, my commitment, my my passion, my focus, everything that I had, I, I gave to her. Right, so we could have this covenant relationship. We became one. The best of me I gave to her, and, she, and God's saying, I'm jealous because I'm I am committed, having given the best of myself, my spirit, to put in you to show that we are in relationship with one another. He's simply expressing the nature of a marriage covenant relationship that he's entered in with you and with the body of Christ as a whole. He's saying, I am jealous. And here's the problem. Like, we use the word jealousy in our culture today, and has a negative connotation. It always means like an unhealthy possessiveness. You're like, you know those, like, those people like that. You're like, oh, the jealous type, right? And so, but that's not what it means. Like in Scripture, its original use, in fact, the only way it's ever used in the Old Testament and the New Testament is positive, and it speaks more to a zeal, a fervent passion, and a commitment to the one that we're in relationship with. Like you know what that looks like. You've been around those couples where you have like one of them 
is kind of flighty in their relationship, not quite as invested. And then you have the alternative over here, the, the, that, that spouse who was like overly committed and they're so invested and they're giving the best of themselves. And you're like, man, they're way, way more into that relationship than the other, right? That's a jealousy. That's a zeal. That's a biblical zealot, like a biblical jealousy. They are overly, fully, 100% committed in this relationship and will never let anything come in between them. Now, this one, I'm not real sure where they stand, but this one, this one is fervent in their zeal. And God say, James is saying, that's who God is in your relationship. He is always, that's why he opposes you. He, ne- listen, was, uh, Claudia told me this week, she sent me an email. She wanted me to say this because she thought it was so powerful and I thought it was beautiful. I wrote her back. So she said, she said, this is what they studied in their Bible group and we find it says, jealousy for God means God is constantly moving towards us. Jealousy for God means God is constantly Never ending, moving towards us, whether it's with receiving with open arms because we're walking in humility or opposing us because he doesn't want us to die in our pride. He's always moving towards us. He's always convicting. He's always loving. He's always moving. His, listen, Scripture says, zeal for his house consumes him. He loves us too much and is too passionate for our relationship to allow anything to destroy our lives and keep us from our relationship with him. So let's end by now looking at the section, God gives grace to the humble. will be done in about, I don't know, probably about eight minutes. So God gives grace to the humble. So the humble find their pleasure in Jesus. The humble are satisfied with their needs being met by him. Listen to these. Don't tune out, please. The humble find their pleasure in Jesus. They are satisfied with their needs being met by him. They don't despise the gifts of the earth and the blessings found on earth, but they don't find their passions being met in obtaining them. It's good to like, hey, it is good and right to recognize it's a beautiful car, but if our only pleasure in life is in obtaining it, then we've messed up, right? And so in this, they humble, listen, the humble die to self and die to self-seeking as a lifestyle. And they find wholeness in their relationship with God. They have entered into relationship with Jesus and they don't, Feel the need to look outside of their covenant relationship to find satisfaction and to find fulfillment. They don't look elsewhere. Going back to Revelation language, James is leading his readers, listen, to return to their first love. He's telling them to return to your first love. And when they do, the first part of chapter verse 6 says... But God gives more grace. God pours out grace. God pours out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. God's call to a relational purity in our covenant is relationship. Not cheating on God can be difficult. We live in a world of great temptation, great trials. We wrestle with the desires of the world. We wrestle with the desires of the flesh. And it can be too much for us. But, and here is the gift of James to God's people. When those moments come, God gives more than enough of his strength, of his grace for us to succeed. In those moments, he says, man, there's greater grace. There's always more of me. There's always enough of me. There's always enough strength. There's always enough power. There's always enough resistance to the work. And in my grace, there's always more of my grace to be had. When? When does he give it? Whenever we need more. 
The language of this verse is a present tense imperative. All that simply means his grace, the power, listen, the grace, the power and ability of God gifted to us. It's available to us in every current situation in life to do what God is calling us to do. Do you need grace? Then it's always available. That's the way he relates to us. I put this down in my notes. I just kind of picture I had God's grace to us is an always flowing fountain rooted in the presence of God's spirit given to us the moment we gave our lives to Jesus. Like in that moment you gave it to Jesus, it's like, here's a fountain of my spirit. It's a fountain of grace. And when you need it, it's right here. It's just going to continue to flow. And as you choose humility, now, when you choose pride, you've closed the door. I haven't closed the door. My, my grace is still flowing, but you've closed the door to my grace. But when you choose humility, it just continues to flow to meet you in every single moment that you have to strengthen you when you feel like you can't go on, to strengthen you when you feel like the enemy is winning, to strengthen you in the moment you feel like you want to give up. There's always a fountain of grace. There's always greater grace. The humble are diligent in fighting against their selfish ambition. Here in these verses, the second half of chapter verse 6 through 10, James describes how the diligent must be in fighting against living proud lives that shut them off to God's grace and shut them down in the context of God's grace. Here are some practice. These are steps that we're practicing. Here is James, again, giving a very helpful list of things and practices for us to engage, to embrace a lifestyle of humility. Steve, how do I choose this? Just do what James says. Let's look on the screen at all of these things. We're going to go through each of them. Number one, he says, submit yourselves to God. If you don't, this is a picture real quick of repentance. Repentance. This is just a picture of what repentance looks like. I'm going this pathway towards destruction, and I choose repentance and I do, the, this is what it looks like, and then I move towards life, okay? So this is just an overarching picture of repentance. First, submit yourselves to God. Submission, we said this a few weeks ago, submission always speaks to surrender. And then we obey. Listen, in battle, like when you watch these movies in battle, we recognize when people are overmatched and overpowered. And when they are overmatched and they are overpowered, what do they do? They surrender. Why does God oppose the proud? So that all of a sudden we look up and go, I surrender. I surrender. God, you're so much bigger. It's so much greater. I can't believe I was living for myself. That's why he opposes. That's why in full battle array, he says, do you see who I am? Yes, God. I, I'm sorry. I surrender. White flag. You do what you want to do. I surrender. Have your way in my life. I am overmatched. I'm, I'm overpowered. I'm okay with that. I recognize how much stronger, bigger, and capable you are, so I give you everything. This is the first step. How, are, how do you do every day? It's submitting and surrendering. If you're like me, you're not awesome at it always. Right? Second, so submit to God and then resist the devil and he will flee. I love this one. It encouraged me. You know why? Because what James says is when you resist in your surrender, the devil has to leave. 
Like, I don't know what you feel and what your experience is, but theologically we are told what is true as a promise is that when you surrender to God and then we resist the enemy, he has to leave. And that's encouraging because anytime, listen, we have the ability to resist the work of the enemy by God's grace. God, I can't resist. I surrender. It's like fantastic. Here is my never-ending flow of power through you to resist the devil, and I'm going to empower you to do it so you, when you resist, he will flee. Is he scared of you? Nope. He's scared of Jesus inside of you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Any t- listen, I want you to hear this. This is like this is like a theological premise you can stand on. Anything, and listen, any time we attempt to resist the devil, it is an act of humility, surrendering to God's plan, and the water of God's fountain of grace will flow into your lives and give you success in resisting him. So, so re- surrendering and resisting is an act of humility that opens the door for his power and his grace to flow in you and to empower. And then he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God. Repentance is always the action of going this direction and then turning and then moving back towards God with the promise that he always welcomes you, always have in mind the prodigal son. Don't you love that story? Here's this guy who's literally walking in pride, absolutely opposed to the father, doing his own thing. The father doesn't chase him down, doesn't try to help him. Knows, Listen, the father knows that he is eating the stuff of pigs. He knows everything going on, but he is opposing him in the moment saying, I've got to let you hit rock bottom so that you will then surrender to me. You will submit to me. You will turn, right? You will resist the work of the enemy and you'll return. But when he submitted, when he resisted and he came back, what did the father do? Did he stand up there going, hmm, let's see how you do, brother. No, he's like, let me run down. And he takes off four. Him and you will know the story. You've heard the message a thousand times. It's one of the stories everybody likes to tell, right? Because the father embraced him as he stunk like a pig and gave him everything that belonged to him. You want to talk about a blessing being poured out? You don't deserve it when you look like and smell like a pig. And he poured it out on him. Come near, and God will come near to you even while you're still in pigness. It's beautiful. Runs to him and pours them out. And then he says, now, kind of going back to last week, now go, and sin more, now go and sin no more. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's looking back to the adultery. Double-minded is a clear metaphor of a person who blesses God over here and then curses people who proclaims the love for Jesus, yet loves the things of the world, right? We, want, we live wanting more money, more prestige, whatever it may be, Right? We live in this place. You want God, but you also want something else. And he's saying, you can't do that. You can't be an adulterer. You can't say, I want you, God, and all the things of the world, because I'll only be happy if I get them. Like, no one probably actually says that, but you absolutely think it. If I just, if you ever say, if I just had, if I, if I just had, and that's like, oh, straight down into the pride. He says, man, you've got to wash your hands, y'all. Go and sin no more. It's like when you find out, most like, Jesus, I come to you, I surrender, I come near to you, and now I'm going to wash. I'm going to let you just wash me and purify me. There's a choice in this. We have to 
choose to walk towards Jesus. There's nothing worse. And you see the whole story of the Old Testament is people walking with God and then choosing the world and things going hard and then pendulum back to God and things going great and then going back to the world and then pendulum back to the things of God. And there's this whole thing back and forth. And he's saying, you've got to stop doing that. You can't go back over here. You have a responsibility to go and sin no more. And he says, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. Listen, James is not saying Christians should live life grieving, gloomy, mourning, wailing, and never laughing all the time. That's not what he's saying. He's giving it the spirit, it's the, spirit the, the, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, and patience, all these beautiful things, right? But what he's saying is this. If you are living for the world, then you need to choose to die. You have to choose to die to the things of the world. Because these are all, this is all language around death. Dying in the moment. Dying to self. You have to choose to die. Let me just say this. The death to self is always a death. And death is never easy. Dying to what you've known. Dying to your passions. Dying to your your worldly desires. That is never, ever easy. That is never, ever easy. And it never being easy, you have to recognize that we, when we choose to die in the moment, that God says, as you humble yourselves, was the last one. As you humble yourself in death, in the kingdom, death always leads to life. It's the idea of saying, I want you to die now and grieve and wail and mourn knowing that life is on the other side. Choose this in the moment. It's a death and it's hard, but it will produce life. In the part that James would say really practically, because if you stay in this place of going after these desires, it may feel good now, but in time, you will grieve, you will mourn, you will wail, your laughter will turn into mourning, your joy will turn into gloom because these things always lead to death. And I want you to change now because when you, this leading you to death, I'm not sure what the return will look like. It might be too late. Do it now. It's a gift. It's a hard word, isn't it? These words you do like, oh my gosh, I feel like this good, yes. James is coming and said, I've got to be honest with you. Because what God has for you is so much greater. Live for the relationship that you have with him. He will fill you. Die to self. Self-seeking. Selfish ambition. The wisdom of the world. Die to it. And allow God to be the greatest passion and desire because he will fill you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for truth and honesty, Lord. Lord, I thank you that as we're honest this morning, there's always grace. There's greater grace. There's grace this morning saying, ah, this is true, but I love you in this. I've made a way for you. I will draw near to you. I will guard and I will fight for you and I will fight with you when I need to to make sure that you stay on this path towards salvation. And I just pray, Jesus, would you open up people's ears this morning? Maybe where they've tuned you out to be honest about where they are and that you would change them forever. We pray this in your name. Amen.